live from a polling center in Slovyansk that is actually a horse-drawn cart. This is Political Risk. Welcome to Political Risk. Aaron Manabek, how are you? I'm alright, Stephen Wilkin, how are you? I'm well, thank you. And with us this time around is a man who needs no introduction, but he's going to get one anyway. He is an expert on Afghanistan and Pakistan, global terrorism and its financing, Philadelphia Eagles, but not mountain biking, apparently. Uh, he is a professional staff member for the House Foreign Affairs Committee, uh, and in 2012, to the delicious hilarity of friends and colleagues, uh, myself included. He was named to Diplomatic Courier's Top 69 Under 300 Pounds. He is Jeffrey Archibald Dressler. Jeff, how are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm good, thanks. A, Jeff A. Dressler is Archibald, right? It, it is. Most people don't know. Really yeah. well, I didn't know that, yeah. That's because yeah, it just became the case just now. Um, <laughs> we can change that. It's just a minor paperwork. Yeah. Second segment up, you're going to be yep. Jeffrey Al Alfred Dressler. Um, Aloysius. 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 I like it. <laughs> Avakivius. Um, you're actually the second member of the CNAS Next Generation National Security Leaders class of 2014. We had Paul D. Shingman in last time around, so we're, we're working through the class. It's good. So um, I should say, unless you want to say it yourself, that you're here in, in, a, in your capacity as a private, up, upstanding citizen. A, a concerned citizen. Concerned citizen. Law abiding. <laughs> law-abiding and not as a representative of, uh, of the United States government or any of its elected officials. That's correct. Do they know you're here? Do you think you'd be? Of course. Yeah. Of course. They're yeah. proud down here. <laughs> They've been trying to get someone in here. They've been trying. So many emails. For months. That's right. Incredible. That's right. Book solid for months. Yes. By our own schedules. <laughs> well, I have to take the dogs to the vet. Right. Aaron works out a lot. Like, there's a lot. There's a lot going on. There's a lot going on. In, yeah. in, in, at political risk. Actually, HQ. we should warn our our listeners. That there's probably going to be large gaps over the next two months. Yeah. I'm going to be out of the country for at least four of the next seven weeks. Do you want to tell them where you are, or are you worried about people meeting you at the airport? And no, I'm really well. I would love to say I'm uh, Aaron, Aaron is going to be following Justin Bieber on tour <laughs> for the next seven weeks. Uh, let's try. I'm going to be a roadie. <laughs> You're carrying his his hair products from place to place. I'm the one who buys his cocaine. Yeah. Um, no, I'm going to Japan on a national security trip, which should be a lot of fun. I've never been. Going to Italy for a week on vacation. That would probably be more fun. I would have thought so. So I didn't know political risk was making so much money. You guys are <laughs> that's right. Away. All these endorsements that we get in. That's right. Yeah, and then Israel for for another national security trip. There we go. On that note, let's strap in for some hard hitting analysis. Uh, I thought we would start with Afghanistan, since that's what Jeff is best known for. For a long time, Afghanistan watches. This has been a a pretty big year, and not too long ago we witnessed something that many of us thought would never happen. Against all the odds, despite all the violence, Afghanistan won the Asian Cricket Council Premier League, <laughs> thumping victory over Nepal 
Jeff, as someone who spent a lot of time in the country, that must have been pretty emotional to watch. <laughs> Absolutely. In fact, I didn't even know about it until I saw it. <laughs> <laughs> He's been blinded by emotion. Yeah, it yeah. must have been good. But I guess probably when you were, when you cleared the smoke from your eyes, there was also an election that took place. There was. There was. And I think, um, you know, despite what most people had predicted, it was, uh, it was fairly... Uh, safe. There wasn't a tremendous amount of violence. I mean, there was a lot of attacks, but they were low, low, you know, low-scale attacks. Didn't cause a lot of disruption. Uh, a lot of Afghans turned out to vote, and interestingly enough, the candidate that most people thought Karzai supported, Zalmay Rasul, uh, did not actually enter as one of the the two front runners in the right. election. And uh, and so that was a, a bit of a surprise to a lot of people, I think. Now. A lot of speculation in terms of how much he actually backed him, or you know, if he really mobilized his network behind him. It would appear not. Um, and instead, you have two frontrunners in uh, Abdullah Abdullah, who's a northern politician who uh, was contending the race with Karzai in the last election. He is half Tajik? Is He's that half right? Tajik and half Pashtun. Right. Uh, which is an interesting combination. We can talk about that a little bit and sure. why that may have helped him. But the other candidate is uh, Ashraf Ghani, who is um, sort of a Western technocrat uh, who, who has been uh, handling the economic portfolio and a number of other things for the Afghan government. So. Uh, it appears that those are the two, you know, main candidates. Uh, there's nobody else in contention at this point for right. president, and they're they're going to be headed for a runoff election that will take place uh, sometime in the next month or two, and that will determine, uh, you know, who the, who the next president is. And I saw today that actually Zamir Razul uh, threw his support behind Abdullah Abdullah, which is interesting. I mean, if you're looking at so, you know, if you consider Zamir Razul as Karzai's candidate, you know, quote unquote. Um, then the fact that he would mobilize for Abdullah Abdullah is interesting. Uh, I, I think, you know, he could be doing it for a few reasons. Number one, he's the Pashtun candidate, uh, and so is Ashraf Ghani, the other contender. And so if uh, Abdullah Abdullah is thinking about a, a vice presidential candidate, you know, maybe Zahmeh Rasul is positioning himself for that role. And I could see the two of them joining up in the sense that Abdullah Abdullah is really a northern candidate who uh, seemed to have gotten some of the Pashtun vote, but is predominantly northern, northern voters and is not terribly popular in the South. And so if Rasul can help to mobilize some of the Pashtuns in the second round to back Abdullah Abdullah, then I think that that, that would probably seal the election for him and uh, and keep Ashraf Ghani on the outside. He was already, what, like sort of 15% ahead in the first? He was, although it's hard to say, you know, how that's going to shake out in a, in a second round because mm. they're starting fresh again. So, you know, it sort of resets the clock and, sure. and they go from the beginning. Uh, and, you know, you have to consider the fact that there's other candidates in the race that may have taken away votes from one candidate or another, so it's right. hard to say how how that would change in the second round. Um, but it would seem to me if Zalmay Rasul has backed Abdullah Abdullah, then it might signal that uh, President Karzai also may be sort of leaning in that direction, which would seem counterintuitive, frankly, uh, since Ashraf Ghani worked in his government and the two of them are, are apparently somewhat close. Yeah. Um, so that, that was a bit of a surprise. I mean, if you know anything about Afghan politics or, or Afghanistan in general, you know, it, to make prediction is, is absolutely foolish because it, it's usually the opposite <laughs> sure. of coming true. Yeah. Well, with, with that in mind, let me ask you for a prediction. <laughs> um, <laughs> well, you, 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 you said leading up to this first round of, of, uh, of elections uh, of the vote, there wasn't a whole lot of violence. Um, going, up, you know, going into the next round, you you think we're going to see sort of a similar level, more or less? And what, what are sort of the, the, the dynamics at mm. play there? It's a good question. Um, you know, it's hard to say. I can say that the Taliban have announced that they're starting their spring offensive, which is something they do every year, uh, within the next couple of days. And uh, so that will be well underway by the time the second round comes to fruition. 
Uh, it's unclear exactly what, what, you know, why there was so, uh, so many less spectacular attacks this past election than there was in the previous ones. Uh, and, and some have said, well, the Taliban actually never had any intent to really disrupt it, uh, or maybe they were waiting for the second round. And so, you know, we'll see. But um, it seems as though the intimidation and the voter suppression is not as, as prominent as it was in previous elections. And so, you know, I, I think there's a reasonable chance that the next round will not be uh, terribly violent either. Uh, you know, regardless, it's going to happen and voters are going to turn out. So I'm not sure, you know, at this point, if the Taliban would look at it and say, we're, we're really not going to have much of an impact mm -hmm. on it. You know, why why alienate ourselves further from the populace by, you know, killing innocent civilians? Well, let's just let this thing play out and, and deal with it as it comes. Now, of the two of them, um, of, the, of the front runners, do they offer very different sort of visions for what Afghanistan is going to look like? You know, I actually think it's, they're fairly similar, and, and they're not really partisan candidates. They're not particularly partisan to the Pashtuns or the Tajiks in the right. North. They're, they're really nationalists, uh, and, and this is a trend that you've seen in this election in particular, is a very nationalistic um, strain amongst voters who say, look, it's really not about whether you're a Pashtun or a Tajik or an Uzbek or, you know, you're, you're Afghan, and you want the best interests of the country, a united Afghanistan. And, and you're seeing that more and more, which I think is a really positive trend, because a lot of people talk about, uh, you know, breaking the state apart into different regions um, and having federalism, essentially. And, and I, you know, I never thought that that was a, a reasonable solution. Uh, and it seems as though most Afghans who are really quite nationalist in general, whether you're Pashtun or Uzbek or Tajik, believe that this is the future for Afghanistan. And that's really a good sign going forward, because, you know, if you look throughout the history of Afghanistan, the ethnic strife is... Uh, outside, aside from outside interference, like you know, from Pakistan or Iran, um, you know, that's really the most destabilizing thing. And so, if they can kind of put that aside a little bit and focus on governing the country as a whole, uh, then I think that, that that's a very positive development, especially at this critical time when the U.S. and international forces are leaving. Uh, I think that's that's a that's a huge thing if that is in fact happening, and that seems to be reflected in what we're seeing from uh, both voter turnout and, and polling popular opinion point. Right. And on that note, bo both of these guys have said, that, have agreed that they would um, sign some kind of states of forces or at least remainder mm -hmm. agreement yeah. um, on U.S. forces. Do you think that that is likely? I, I do. Yeah. So essentially what needs to happen is they need to sign a bilateral security agreement right. called the BSA. And uh, basically what, it, what it, it lays out the legal... Um, you know, justifications for a residual U.S. presence after 2014, and each country has to sign their own, and some have signed and some are still working on it, but um, ours is obviously a very important one, the U.S. one, and it sure. basically says, all right, look, you know, uh, immunity for troops, uh, or not, not immunity, actually, I should qualify that. A lot of people don't understand this. It's not, it's not immunity, so if, you know, a U.S. soldier commits some sort of a, um, you know, violent act or something illegal in Afghanistan, it doesn't mean that the soldier's immune. It just means that they can't be tried in Afghan legal system. They're still under, you know, U.S. military right. code of conduct right. uh, and legal system. And so immunity is really the wrong word to use. And I think a lot of Afghans don't understand that when we talk about immunity. Sure, yeah. We're not saying... Well, just a lot of Iraqis didn't understand that. Yeah, right. Well, right. I mean, with that being the case, who who chose this word immunity? It's a, it's a poor <laughs> choice of word. It's really not. It's... It's accountability, but not through, but through our own structure, not right. through, which is pretty standard. I mean, you know, you don't want to sure. leave your soldiers open for, I mean, they're there serving their country. You don't want to. Right. So, 
Um, so that's one of the issues. The other one is just troop numbers, and that's really the, the big thing. Uh, a lot of people have criticized this administration saying that, you know, we sh that the administration should have come out earlier and said how many troops they want to keep or that they're at least committed to a residual troop presence. And they, they haven't wanted to do that, um, and I think it's undermined some trust and confidence in the U.S. and their commitment to Afghanistan. But, um, you know, you, you hear a range of numbers. Some people have said 5,000, some people have, have said zero, some have said 10. And then in addition to that, there's going to be a contingent of international forces that, that are going to stay as well, and that sure. number is anywhere from two to six. So you could be looking at as many as 15,000 U.S. and international troops or as little as zero. I, I don't think anybody's seriously considering the zero option unless, of course, we can't get a signed agreement. But as you mentioned, both candidates have pledged that they will sign an agreement, and I believe that that's, that's the case because it's in everybody's interest to do that. Um, but I would say that, you know, Zero troops would, would obviously be a problem. I mean, we have residual counterterrorism interests. Uh, we have training uh, of the Afghan security forces that we have to do. And there's also a symbolic aspect of keeping a, a small footprint of U.S. forces in your country. Um, 5,000 is kind of the middle range uh, number, lower, lower to middle range number. I think that's, that's problematic just in, in terms of the, um, you know, what, what you need from a force protection standpoint. Right. And, uh, a counterterrorism standpoint, that, that doesn't leave much wiggle, wiggle room to, to do the kind of CT operations that you need. And a 5,000 number would seem to suggest to me that you're not going to be doing any training of the Afghan security forces. Right. Very bare bones assessment, a very bare bones uh, footprint, and I think you're only talking about maybe one base if you're talking about 5,000 troops. Right. So, so those who are throwing out 5,000, they're, 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 pro they're prioritizing either CT operations or training. Because they're likely only doing one of the two, is there is there a reason to believe that we really we really only benefit from from a base of operations for CT work? Is 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 it sort of a is a sort of a lost cause to be trained security forces at this point? Is it is it is it worth you know the U.S. you know throwing another five thousand people mm -hmm. there? For, well, so, I mean, what I would say is it, it's worth it in the sense that the Afghan security forces still need a lot of support and a lot of assistance. And, and things that are kind of like the, the unsexy things that people don't normally think about, but they're things like logistics and intelligence, surveillance and reconnaissance support, uh, air power, right? So, you know, these are all things that are absolutely critical to making effective fighting forces. And more importantly, I think, uh, giving them the confidence that they need to go out there and conduct these operations knowing that they have support, that they're going to be supplied, you know, that, that if they get into a, a sticky situation, they can call quick reaction forces and they're going to come and, and save them. So, uh, no, I think all that stuff is absolutely critical. And and that is really a separate issue from the U.S. counterterrorism concerns mm -hmm. because that is that would really be narrowly focused towards a select group of, of uh, you know, al-Qaeda and affiliated groups who are continuing to operate in Afghanistan. Uh, but even that, I mean, even from a U.S. perspective, you know, to effectively launch counterterrorism strikes, you know, you need timely intelligence, you need proximity to the, to the target, um, you know, you need a number of things, and it, it, it concerns me that uh, there, you could have such a small footprint that you can't actually achieve that mission. So, uh, and then of course there's, there's, um, there's force protection. So in order to have a footprint in a country, you have to supply your own force protection to guard the base, patrol outside the perimeter, make sure people aren't, you know, lobbing mortars onto mm -hmm. your base. And and that requires a, um, a commitment of, of troops that are dedicated purely to that. And so those are not troops that you're going to be able to use in any other capacity except for protecting that base. So there's a certain number under which the troops essentially are just, like, 
It could be more dangerous. They're just sustaining I, themselves, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah, that's right. You, you can go so low that you can actually, I think you could actually cause more uh, more harm and more danger to those troops that are in country than anything right. a little bit larger and we're able to, to sort of provide right. a bit of a protective bubble. I think that's, that's good background information for people who are just reading this in the Washington Post and trying to assess the, yeah. the debate. That kind of stuff yeah. doesn't, get, doesn't get really sort of examined well, in those pages. There's another interesting point, and there's an article that was published the other day uh, that talked about uh, the Central Intelligence Agency's role right. in Afghanistan. I don't know if you were going to mention this, but they, yeah. um, you know, they're, they're the, according to the article anyways, they're starting to scale back their presence. Right. And the article, according to the article, it said that, that they're only going to maintain a presence in Kabul. Um, and so that means pulling back from all the, the hotspots that they've been in. And they're also going to stop funding and supporting these Afghan militias that they have contracted with and trained that really do, uh, according to the article, a lot of the high-value uh, operations that, um, you know, maybe fall outside of the scope of the major major high-value targets that U.S. forces will go after, but are still very important and are, and are critical to the operations of all these, you know, insurgent groups who operate there. Uh, and so I think that that is really an interesting development. That is something that I don't think many people saw coming. It's obviously things that are not very publicly discussed anyways. Right. But that, that is an additional risk factor that we're now adding into the mix that somehow you have to compensate for. And I don't think, you know, the Afghan security forces are really capable at this point of, of picking up that slack. So, um, so you know, there's a lot of different factors going on here. Uh, and there's plenty of reasons to be concerned, although there are some positive notes, too, like with the election and... Um, and the cricket, of course. And, and the cricket, <laughs> don't forget about the cricket. And volleyball. Sport. Sport. Yeah, yeah, volleyball. A lot of people yeah. don't understand this. Volleyball is a huge national sport now in Afghanistan. And is that true? Yeah, and it's mainly because U.S. forces basically brought it to the country, and, and now it's, it's quite popular. The U.S. women's beach volleyball teams. They can go through a USO tour. They can go, exactly. Yeah, yeah. 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 peace through Top Gun. Peace through Top Right, exactly. So, um, th you're taking the, you know, the balance of the, the good elections volleyball and the you know potential problems what do you if you're willing to ask this what do you think afghanistan looks like in 2016 mm. or 2020 even well 2020 is tough uh 2016 you know what, what does it look like at the start of, of, of hillary right. clinton's you know, yeah. administration? <laughs> i don't know if i'm ready to concede that <laughs> yet but uh you know i i, I think uh i think that things should be relatively unchanged it, it, you know you might have a little bit of backsliding in the the more remote areas because uh, naturally you know US forces are going to scale back and um, you know Afghan forces might lose some terrain especially on the border with Pakistan there's a few wild cards I'll talk about what those could be and, and how that might change things but you know generally speaking I think the, the a successful election and a relatively smooth transition from Karzai to the next president is very very important for a lot of reasons um, Secondly, I think continuing to provide funding for the Afghan uh, security forces is absolutely critical. So, you know, something like $4.2 billion U.S. Uh, yearly. Uh, that is going to be absolutely key because if that funding runs out and, you know, you can't pay for the security forces, then they're going to start to fracture, fall apart, uh, align with warlords who can actually pay their salaries. And you're going to see the Afghan National Security Forces disintegrate, potentially, at which point they're unable to uh, have the monopoly on the use of force. And, mm -hmm. uh, and I think at that point, you'd set the stage for some sort of a large-scale insurgent mm -hmm. resurgence, Sure, you know, I could use that word. So, uh, so that's a major concern. And that, that's, you know, that's not really an Afghanistan issue. That, that's really more of a U.S. political issue. So is there enough right. political support on, 
on uh, on the Hill, both in the House yeah, and the Senate. Four point two billion is a lot of money. It's a lot of money. Sense. It's not budget dust, and yeah. um, and, and you know, and 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 you know, you have uh, new members coming in who may not be as familiar with with kind of why are we fighting this war? You know, what's the point of this? Uh, and and that's a concern. So I think you're going to have to see some sort of progress. You're going to have to see a bilateral security agreement. Uh, and you may even need U.S. troops in country in order to really guarantee that that money is going to continue to be forthcoming. Uh, but it's absolutely critical. So I think that's it. Now, there's a few caveats, as I mentioned. There's things that, that are wild cards that, you know, it's hard to sort of gauge what's going to happen. One of them is Pakistan, and that's a big one. You know, what, what, is, what does the Pakistani military and the ISI see for Afghanistan? Do they see uh, reconciliation with the Taliban and inclusive government? Do they see continuing to fuel the, the flames of the insurgency by providing assistance? Um, you know, I mean, that that is a bit of a wild card. So I think there will still continue to be support for the insurgency from elements within the Pakistani security establishment. That's not a surprise. That's been ongoing for a long time now. But whether or not that, that uh, significantly ratchets up or ratchets down um, is yet to be seen. But uh, So that's a major wild card. Another one is Iran, obviously. Although I think the Iranians have their hands full in other theaters, and so Afghanistan is probably not going to be a main, a main focus for them. Um, there's the Chinese, what the Chinese decided to do. There's been increasing interest from the Chinese side uh, in mineral rights in Afghanistan, and there's just been a new uh, mineral rights law that the Afghan government has uh, has come out. I haven't had a chance to look into it yet. That's that was news as of this morning. Uh, so there's a lot of different you know factors at play here, and I really think it's almost impossible to look out beyond six months or a year when you're talking about Afghanistan. Sure. I mean, there's just so many factors. Um, well, let, let, let me let me ask the question a bit differently. If you're if you're if you're the president of the United States right now, which of the two candidates would you have, or would you have a preference mm -hmm. for you know in terms of being able to work through these issues together? Yeah. Uh, I think the two are relatively evenly matched, and, and I, I don't mean that as a cop-out. I think that they both uh, have similar skill sets. They're both fairly technocratic. Um, they have um, experience working within government or outside of government working in, with issues uh, that are similar to the issues they're going to deal with. You know, I think Ashraf Ghani is probably um, somebody who is a little bit more Western in orientation which may be a good thing for the U.S., but I'm not sure it necessarily is a good thing for, for governance in Afghanistan right. in terms of his ability to kind of unify. You know, the one thing you need from an Afghan leader is somebody who can unify, bring people together, and lead, and keep coalitions and balance interests. I mean, that's what Karzai did for, for his entire tenure. And, uh, you know, you can say what you want about President Karzai, but uh, he managed to keep those, uh, you know, power brokers happy and content and in the system. So that's really going to be a, a challenge for the next Afghan government. Um, one of the things that's kind of overlooked when you talk about governance in Afghanistan is the economy. Um, you know, the economy is like you know ninety plus percent dependent on on foreign assistance and foreign aid. Ninety percent is a big number. Uh, when that starts to dry up, it's going to dry up quickly, and it isn't going to be five percent a year. It's going to be twenty, thirty, forty percent a year, and so that's going to be a real shock to the system. And uh, I think it's going to create a lot of heartache. So a lot of people are used to making a lot of money. Suddenly, they're not going to be making money. And what do they do? Mm -hmm. So this is a bit of a wild card. Um, there's a lot of talk about Afghan minerals and you know billions of dollars of mineral wealth and, and all this. And you know that's fine. I get it. It's all it's in the ground. But uh, ensuring that there's security that's, to take that stuff out, yeah. and transport it to market, and, and that's <laughs> it's, and, and the the track record for natural resources leading to an inclusive, prosperous <laughs> economy is not no. is not strong. 
No, it's not. It's more likely to be appropriated by individuals who control that land. And the government might see, I mean, look, look, take the border revenue, for instance, right? So, you know, Afghan border revenue is one of the main, um, you know, revenue streams uh, in Afghanistan. Tremendous amount of money to be made off the border. How much of that money actually makes it into the Afghan government coffers versus gets doled out in patronage amongst uh, power brokers who control the border crossing or the province or whatever, or the the roads, for instance. So... Um, there's, a, there's, you have to really qualify that when you talk about mineral wealth. I mean, yeah. so th- if you were to assume that that's all going to go into the Afghan government budget, um, that that is not the way that it works. Right. That is not the way that it works. But I would say that at least with Ashraf Ghani, uh, has has a lot of experience in economics and uh, development in third world countries and failed states and that kind of thing. And so sure. I think he he does bring a lot to the table. But the question is, you know, is it in Afghanistan? Is it purely a, a competency and capacity issue? Or is it a corruption and patronage issue? So it's not that people don't know what the right thing is to do, but it's, you know, do you have to manage the, the corrupt system in such a way that, that uh, it's detrimental to, to governance? Right. You know? So it's also a question of buy-in from, you know, ethnic groups and you sure. know, that kind of stuff. Yeah. yeah you got to keep everybody bought into the system. And, yeah. you know, Karzai did that through a patronage system. And I think there's interest, at least in these two candidates, to try to scale that back simply because you kind of need to. Uh, but whether or not they'll be effective and still manage to keep the system together, you know, that, that I don't know. That's, that's an outstanding question. So you mentioned Pakistan um, and Iran. Mm. And uh, obviously this week, or I think possibly last week, uh, Pakistani Prime Minister Nawaz Sharif was in Tehran mm. to kind of work on a bit of a thawing of relations there. There have been some border incidents. Um, been, yeah. What... What is the state of play with their relationship? You know, a lot of people uh, pay a lot of attention to these high-level delegations and visits. Uh, It's actually a pretty normal thing, and I I tend not to read too much into it. One of the more interesting developments is actually not with Iran. It's between Pakistan and Saudi Arabia, and Mm. rapprochement between the two of them, uh, and trying to balance a Shia revival, Mm -hmm. uh, for lack of a better word. Uh, in that region, and you know, the the, uh, the Saudis have just invested billions of dollars in Pakistan, and it's unclear for what exactly the nature of that loan was. There's speculation, uh, according to press reports, that uh, the Pakistanis may be helping the Saudis with a nuclear weapons program, uh, either transferring actual warheads or knowledge and skill sets that's required to, to have a program. I, I I don't I don't know that there's anything to those rumors. I haven't seen anything to that effect in, in the press reports, but. Um, you know, I think that this visit was probably more geared towards uh, swaging the uh, Iranians of their fears about the Saudi-Pakistani uh, relationship than anything sure. else. There is a there's a pipeline issue yeah. that, and I, I you know I gotta say I I just I don't see that happening in the near term. There's too many variables, too many big yeah. ifs yeah. there. I agree. Yeah, I think there's there's some issues there. Um, you know that said. When it comes to to Pakistan, I mean, in, in India as well, for that matter, I mean, they they, they have energy concerns, uh, as well as natural resource issues with water and whatnot. And one of the means, and you know, we can get into this later if you want, but um, you know, we, we we talk about markets for U.S. Uh, natural gas exports, LNG exports. You know, Pakistan seems like a a, a reasonable mm-hmm. destination, as is India. I mean, the Indians have practically begged the U.S. Right. for exports, and we're finally getting that going, but it's it's a slow process. Good. On that note, we'll take a break and we'll come back uh, in just one sec.
Uh, Boko Haram mm. has been in the news a lot uh, very recently, although on and off since at least, what, two, 2009? Mm. I mean, they've been active. Anyway, knowing that Africa is, uh, is part of your beat, um, of course, they were, they're in the news for most recently an you know, increasingly audacious uh, wave of attacks, including the kidnapping of um, schoolgirls in the north. What is the mood, do you think, in, in D.C. as regards what's going on in Nigeria? You know, it's, uh, there's been a huge uproar against this kidnapping, uh, which is interesting because there's been lots of kidnappings, maybe not of 300 people, but lots of kidnappings that have seemed to go unnoticed, not just in Nigeria, but in other African countries. Sure. Uh, th this seemed to really strike a chord, though, with a lot of people, uh, and it really is, it's, it's really, uh, it's really awful. Um, you know, it's a lot of, a lot of, I mean, these are children, right? And, mm -hmm. uh, speculation is that they're either being trafficked, uh, you know, to Europe or wherever for, you know, sex trafficking or sold off into marriage, uh, or being used as a, as a, um, uh, a bargain for the release of Boko Haram prisoners in Nigeria. Sure. So there's a lot of, a lot of things. Um, I, I, I got to say, I mean, I was not terribly surprised by this. Uh, and the reason being is just that northern Nigeria is basically a lawless zone where right. there's just no law and order. And so right. Boko Haram could do this any day of the week, right. and, it, and it's really quite easy. Um, they may have overplayed their hand, though, with this particular incident because the, the response has been so negative, especially in Nigeria, that um, they may force a more heavy-handed response against them than... Uh, they would have if they say say they spaced this out over a period of you know weeks or months or um, you know weren't so audacious in their in their execution of this. So, um, but yeah, I mean clearly they've struck a nerve here in the U.S. and now everybody's kind of scrambling to say you know well geez what can we do? And I, the only thing I'd say about it is that you know that this is obviously a terrible incident, but but this is the reason why Boko Haram is a problem is not necessarily because they kidnap people. It's it's because of their connections with Al Qaeda. Uh, their potential transnational uh, linkages and aspirations, and uh, and the threat that they pose to the Nigerian state, which is sort of the the, the rock bed of, of Africa for a lot of reasons, mm -hmm. um, and so it, it's something that we very much need to be concerned about. Yeah, and the, but they, as I understand it, the Nigerian military has pushed them sort of pretty far north at this point. They're kind of coming back and forth from the Cameroonian border. Yeah. Cameroon and Chad. I mean, it's yeah. a very porous border. They go back and forth. Uh, I have a feeling that there's some, if not most, of these uh, kidnapped uh, children ha have been moved out of the country. Yeah. Uh, but it's a very porous border, and actually it's, it's become more and more dangerous since the French intervention in Mali, which has uh, pushed militants out and helped to sort of reestablish strong linkages between Boko Haram and, and some of these groups. So AQIM and others, um, you know, it, and, and so we've seen that dynamic happen. Um, but the border issue is very difficult. I, I don't know, actually, I wouldn't give the Nigerian security forces too much credit in, in, their, in their operations to push Boko Haram north. I mean, you know, one of the criticisms of the Nigerian security forces is that uh, when they do finally, you know, launch these operations, they're fairly indiscriminate. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of allegations of human rights abuses uh, targeting, you know, anybody who... who who lives in these towns, a fighting age male, for instance, and arresting them. And, and so, you know, it, it's it's that sort of, um, I guess, action on behalf of the state that can have an effect in decreasing Boko Haram's capabilities and, and fighting force, but at the same time also risk alienating the population that you want to win on your side. And so this is, you know, people often confuse what Nigerian military is doing in Nigeria as counterinsurgency operations. These are not counterinsurgency operations. Mm -hmm. These are heavy-handed 
military blanket responses. Right. And, you know, in many ways, that can actually cause as a driver of the uncertainty rather than a, a something that helps to, to lessen. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. I mean, there, there's so many examples of this. Tons. Going, you know, going back in history now, I mean, you, you look at what the Egyptians are doing in Sinai, it's the same thing. You would you would think that there's some lessons learned to be out there. Same so, Iraqis, Iraqis, yeah. Iraqis, yeah. Well, yeah. you know, one of the problems with the Nigerian and I was in I was in Nigeria in uh, in August of this past uh, this past year, and you know, one of the things that is uh, a challenge for for training of Nigerian security forces is the Lady Law, uh, which basically says that. And again, it was sort of um, it was bolstered uh, not too long ago with stricter. Um, restrictions on training host nation security forces, U.S. training host, host nation security forces who um, have committed human rights violations. And so basically the way it's applied in that, in that country and in others is that, you know, if there's one individual who is blacklisted as a human rights violator in a unit of 300 people, that entire unit is blacklisted. And nobody can then train that entire unit. And, and and so, you know, part of this is, you know, the, the Leahy law is very strict in its application, which in some cases is a good thing, in some cases it, it may not be as helpful. Um, but, but the other part of it is just that Nigerian uh, government has not done as much as it could to identify which individuals are, you know, problematic in terms of being blacklisted and, and move them out or get rid of them. Uh, and so there, there, are, there are huge swaths of Nigerian military that we cannot train. Now, we've there's a new 850-man uh, special forces uh, unit that has recently been stood up, and I, I don't know that it's fully established yet, but um, these individuals are new recruits, so we don't have to worry about human rights violations with them because they haven't done anything yet. Yet, uh, right? Yes. Right, but but these are this. I think I think the Nigerian military envisioned this as the main fighting force against Boko Haram. But you know, uh, it, it, again, this comes back to the reality of war and and the things that the tools that you need in order to have effective operations. You got to have good intel. You gotta have surveillance and reconnaissance. You gotta have logistics, um, and then you gotta have a capable fighting force. And so all these things are challenges, especially in remote areas, some beasts of forest where Boko Haram primarily operates out of. I mean, that's a massive swath of territory that is very difficult. I mean, it's thick brush cover. It's hard to see what's going on there. You you know you can't just fly over and drop some bombs. I mean, you gotta send in troops on the ground and, and flush these guys out. And they haven't been as successful as that, I think, as as they as they could be. Hmm. As they could be with current capabilities. Well, they need they need assistance. They need they need specialized training. Uh, they need uh, intelligence support. They need a lot of things in order to be effective. I mean, I, I look at Indonesia actually as a model for this. You know, you go back in Indonesia and Jemaah Islamiyah, right? Um, after the the Bali bombing, I think it was in two thousand two. Mm -hmm. uh, U.S. special forces really made a big effort to go out there and work with the Indonesian security forces, special forces in particular, and. And uh, and get them up to speed. Today, Jemaah Islamiyah practically doesn't exist because the senior leadership has been totally decimated. The organization basically ceases to exist today. And you know we had issues with the Indonesian uh, human rights violations and security forces and, and things and things of that nature. And we we worked through that. And we managed to mitigate that. And today, the organization doesn't exist. So like this is a model that I look at now. This is it's been many years, right? So this is not a short term fix. This is a ten, you know, twenty year process. But if it's important to us, and I, and I believe that it is, then this is something we ought to seriously look at doing. And Indonesia is a good model for that. Between, between Boko Haram, Al-Shabaab in Somalia, um, who obviously carried out, you know, have carried out some pretty spectacular attacks mm. and, yeah. and have just, in fact, I think just carried out some big attacks in Mogadishu in the last couple of days. Mm -hmm. The remnants of, you know, AQIM, 
I don't know if they're still in Mali or if they're now in where, wherever they might be. Yeah. Um, how concerned should we be about Islamist militancy, Al Qaeda linked militancy, mm. uh, sort of really changing the face of, of what a, passes for stability? Around? Yeah, it's a great question. I think there's a little bit of a misunderstanding uh, in terms of how we think about terrorism. And we tend to look at these groups and say, well, you know, if they can't pose a direct threat currently to the U.S. homeland, then it's not a pressing issue. Right. And we don't deem them to be core Al Qaeda, and, you know, that's not our problem. At the same time, defining all these other groups, these Al Qaeda groups and their affiliates, AQIM, AQAP, Al Shabaab, uh, you know, you name it, as locally focused groups who have no transnational <coughs> aspirations, who aren't connected with each other or with AQ Corps in Pakistan and Afghanistan, is really a fallacy. I think it's a total misreading of the situation. And so I would argue that, you know, really, the, 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 our main concern should not just be whether or not X group has the capability to attack the U.S. homeland, but what are they trying to do uh, in their region? What is their relationship with these other groups? So five years from now, are we looking at a situation where you know five African countries no longer have a functioning government or monopoly uh, over the use of force in their country, and these groups are basically free reign, uh, they have, they've got revenue streams, they've got fighters, and this is, you know, sort of the caliphate that Osama bin Laden would talk about, you know, trying to establish. And, you know, we would have laughed at this 10 years ago, but I, I think, you know, 10 years from now, if we're not careful, that this might be closer to reality than we think. Right. And, and it's at that point where, you know, you have a serious problem, because if they're then directing the majority of their energy towards attacking the homeland or, you know, uh, Europe or other Western interests, um, your ability to, to then stop them at that point is going to be severely constrained because they, there's just so much territory they control. Right. right. Well, it's, 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 I, find, I find this region particularly scary or threatening or whatever you might want to use because it's just such a fertile ground for, for recruiting efforts. Huge. Now and even more so probably in the future. We were talking about huge population booms in the least economically developed part of the world. Yeah, right. Well, and look, you, you hit on something very important, um, you know, and I think, I personally believe uh, that corruption is a huge driver of, uh, of mm -hmm. resentment uh, in these countries, in these poor countries, especially in places like Nigeria. You know, you have massive uh, oil revenue, tons of money coming into the government. Population largely doesn't see any of this, except for a small segment of the elite. And, uh, you know, when groups like Boko Haram come up and they say, this government is abusive, this government is predatory, this government is corrupt, they do nothing for you, you need to support us because we're an alternative. And if you're that aggrieved, to the extent that you're willing to set yourself on fire over a fruit stand, uh, then that says something about, about popular sentiment and, and they're, they're just the feeling that they have no recourse for their grievances, right? And so whether it's turning to Islamic extremism uh, or just simply not participating in government or whatever the case may be, and these are serious issues, and I think corruption is a huge driver of this. I think we've failed to appreciate just how potent corruption is in driving, uh, you know, popular discontent, Islamic extremism even, or at the very least, even if there's not a direct one-for-one -one correlation, it's um, the fact that individuals might be willing to support these groups, not because they believe in them ideologically, but because they at least feel some sort of recourse. Now you're starting to see these groups provide dawah, which is, and you guys are familiar with this and you talked about this before, but social services to the population. Uh, that is a truly concerning, and I, I would point you to an article that Aaron Zellin 
recently authored on this, talking about how groups like Ansar al-Sharia in Libya and Ansar al-Sharia in Tunisia are starting to uh, really ratchet up their Dawah services. And, and that's hugely concerning because that's like one thing that the local governments are not doing. Right. And by doing this, these groups are essentially trying to swap out local government for, for these military right. groups. Right. Which is something that Hamas has done and something that Hezbollah has Hezbollah done. Hezbollah yeah. extremely well. Moscow Taiba in Pakistan. Right. This, right. this is a proven model and it works. Right. That's incredibly concerning. That's incredibly right. concerning. Well, so with that, let me ask you this because I, I, mean, I, I share that concern. Um, I'm always curious though when, when, when we talk about of U.S., you know, Western U.S. reactions to this. How do we mitigate against these risks? How do we try yeah. to, you know, turn the corner on them? Obviously, you have to have a certain amount of counterterrorism in there because there are pressing sure. concerns right now. Yeah. You know, but but I wonder how much, if, if we're just focused on sort of the the, the, the CT aspect, how much we're really able to achieve on the turn if we don't have the sort of political and economic, yeah. you know, transitions that we need in these countries. Are we... Are we too heavily focused on the CT aspects that we lose public support here in this country, you know, and and in the West for the type of things we would need to yeah. do long term on the political and economic tracks? I, I, you know, you make a great point. I actually, I don't think it has anything to do with. I mean, looking at it through the U.S. support or you know, disagreement lens is actually the wrong lens. I, I just think you can look at it and say a purely CT, you know, focused effort is unsuccessful. You know, I mean, look at how many of these individuals we've killed or captured over the past, right. you know, 10 years. You know, it's a strategy of attrition where we're trying to kill and capture the senior leaders, individuals who pop on the radar as a major threat. Uh, but meanwhile, these groups control more, ter- op- more territory, operate in more areas, have more safe haven, have more resources, there's more affiliates, uh, more recruits, more acts of violence. The, the, all the trend lines are going in the opposite direction, right. except for maybe that small segment of al-Qaeda core in Pakistan that has been attrited but still exists to this day. So clearly, you know, simply looking at it from a, a counterterrorism aspect is, is is not sufficient. So that begs the question then, all right, well, what do you do? Right. So, you know, it really, it, I think it's really going to require a whole government approach that, that addresses things like corruption, that addresses things like, you know, the economy, um, you know, health and human services. Um, training for host nation security forces even more so, countering uh, violent uh, extremism narrative mm-hmm. and, and what they use to draw recruits. And, and these things are all connected to a degree. So that's connected to the corruption issue and popular grievances and things like that. So uh, I, I, I don't, I mean, I don't pretend to know exactly what, what the solution is if there is one, but I would say a few things. I would say that this is a long-term fight. I think that this is not a five-year or even a ten-year thing. I think this is a long-term thing. I think that we need to orient our strategy in a long-term way and focus on addressing as many things as we can in concert with one another. Uh, and that's a challenge. And it's a challenge because of the nature of our political system, because of the fact that we tend to focus on things one year at a time, if that. Uh, it really is going to require a different approach because I'm afraid that you know five years from now, if we don't change the way that we're operating, we could be dealing with a much more difficult situation. You know, and then it then it's at a crisis level where the way that the U.S. government typically responds is by throwing a lot of money and a lot of resources at it, and it gets mismanaged and misused. Yeah, you you want to take a more pragmatic, reason approach to this. Think through things. You know, figure out what you need. Phase things. You know, put things in a in a phasing system and and do it that way. So, uh, no, I mean to answer your question quite simply, uh, counterterrorism is not enough purely as we think of counterterrorism. Mm-hmm. 
you know, I think the things that we're describing probably can best be described as counterinsurgency, but that is a loaded term now. It's something that is extremely costly, extremely, uh, it, both in terms of blood and treasury. Right. And, I, and I don't want to suggest for a second that I think that, you know, this is something that the U.S. can and should do all by itself all over the globe. I think that's unrealistic. We, we, there's just no public support for that. I don't think that's the best solution. But it's about empowering these host nation security forces and, and local governments and, and uh, you know, non-corrupt actors to the extent that they exist. To, to do these things in their own country and then supporting that. Uh, but I also think, that, you know, just simply giving, throwing money at these countries is, is not the solution either. Right. A lot of that just gets appropriated or stolen, so. Yeah. Let's take another quick break. So finally, on another uh, uplifting note. Yeah, it's just I just wanted to talk about the positive things. Yeah, yeah. I wish we could have just started with the cricket. Finally, we will shift over to Ukraine. Today is an interesting day to be talking about it because despite Vladimir Putin's public uh, yeah. admonition, pro-Russian rebels in eastern Ukraine went ahead today and uh, with their, their referenda on autonomy from Kiev mm -hmm. in Donetsk and Luhansk and uh, Slavyansk. Anything that ends in... Anything with yeah, yeah, Boston, Ansk. The vote uh, reports say that the voting has been like an yeah. absolute shambles. Mm -hmm. um, uh, there's actually no likelihood that any of it is you know, anything like unfair. It's likely that a second round will take place next week on joining Russia, but actually it's interesting that that's not part of this, mm -hmm. this particular mm -hmm. referendum. Meanwhile, NATO has said that it's seen, it's seen no sign of this right. Russian withdrawal from the from the eastern Ukrainian border, which is also it's said to be what forty thousand Russian mm -hmm. troops along along those lines. What do we what do we think is going to happen here? Well, I mean, you know, the the according to the the votes, in fact, the the actual referendum itself was so sufficiently vague that it could essentially mean anything. It, yeah, it, I, it's just it's it's what self rule is that the term? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was just, it's a bit of a hedge, right? I mean, mm. it can be interpreted in any way that you want. So, um, and the the, the you know the, the population who did not support this, my understanding is that the the preliminary reports indicated that they just haven't turned out to vote because they didn't want to. You know, face retribution or abuse, you mm. know, by the the, the the Russian, you know, Russian-backed militias or directly Russian special forces who are guarding these polling stations. So, sure. so I mean, no, this is largely a, a kangaroo court, and and I think the votes can reflect that. And you know, what happens after that? You know, we'll, we'll see. But for sure, Putin has not been deterred. He doesn't feel deterred. Mm -hmm. um, our European allies have had their own issues in uh, implementing stricter sanctions, for instance, on, on Russia. You know, the administration's come out and said we've, you know, we're we're uh, putting together packages of sector sectoral sanctions, right. which, which I think, if if done in a comprehensive way, could could have a much more serious impact. But it's unclear to me what would trigger that. In other words, yeah, well, what, they've, what they've been they vague and in describing yeah. their, their trigger points, right? So, uh, you know, up until this point, I think I think Putin has, has done everything that he's wanted to do, and and again, you know, you have a, a presidential election coming up in Ukraine at the end of the month. The 25th, I think it is. Mm -hmm. Right. And so this is taking place before that. I mean, this is incredibly destabilizing. And I feel like we keep shifting the line to the right. You know, we have 
nobody uses the word redline anymore. I have to show you. <laughs> right, that's, that's, right. A, that's a term that, that nobody would prefer to use. Uh, but but the it seems to be that what is acceptable continues to shift to the right. And I think that both emboldens President Putin and at the same time, uh, you know, makes makes him question our resolve to actually enforce Sure. Well, let me ask a question on the sanctions here. So I've got a, I've got a series of sort of true or false, good thing or bad thing, mm. you know, questions or thoughts. And one of them is that, you know, I think a lot of people view sort of Putin's own narrative or his domestic system as one that's based on the sort of permanent existence of internal and external threats, mm-hmm. right? And that makes Russia in perpetual war, and it makes him this wartime president yeah. who can assume these, you know, these these awesome powers. Mm-hmm. And so in that sense. You know, you could argue that these these sanctions that we're imposing are just feeding this narrative, um, and actually, essentially, making him stronger. Um, you know, it's because uh, the sanctions, in some ways, are actually biting too. I mean, this isn't just PR. I mean, this is you know, sixty billion dollars was withdrawn from yeah. the. You know, I mean, you, people have seen the numbers now. The ruble is depreciating to record sure. lows. You know, this is real. So. Yeah. Are sanctions sort of counterproductive or as helpful to Putin as they are harmful to certain Russians? Uh, you know, look, I think you can just look at it very clearly and say, you know, have we seen any changes in his actions from the sanctions that we've imposed? And if the answer is no, then I don't think they're strong enough. If the answer is yes, then you presumably see him not doing some of the things he's doing. Now, you know, I mean, he's smart. So, I mean, I think the whole point of him saying that, well, you know, I'm pushing for a delay in this referendum. All right, he's saying that publicly, but what's he saying privately? Right. What's he communicating privately? Right. right? Well, so he's creating enough, enough, um, you know, the the ability for him to distance himself from from whatever happens, to know that that might, that might not trigger further. If there's just a little bit of doubt, a little bit of uncertainty, that might be enough to prevent further sanctions from mm-hmm. from coming on. And so you know, he knows how to play this game, and and he's a smart guy. You know, you watch and you learn, you adjust based on how your adversaries react. And I think he's watched. The U.S. He's watched European countries. He knows he has the leverage of of energy, the energy weapon, which absolutely is a weapon. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and so I, I don't think we've seen the end of this. I think we should be looking very carefully for what comes next. Well, let's talk about what's next and, and talk a bit about NATO. Um, you know, so the U.S. has Taylor just docked in Batumi in Georgia. The Minister of Defense in Georgia has been making the rounds mm-hmm. um, with you know, members, I guess, especially the U.S. and with Germany. You know, in he and you know and his government they want a membership action plan. Yeah, they do. Um, I mean, I know you know. I, I know the biggest roadblock up until recently, at least. I don't know where they stand now. Has been Germany. You know, and the U.S. has been sort of, you know, has really hedged against it themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, you so, know, what what's what, what sort of role for NATO? Do you see this? Does NATO need to be enlarged? Do we need to be talking about Georgia and yeah, Ukraine? Right. Well, so there's there's several countries, uh, aspirant countries that, we, that they call them. Georgia is one of them. I think Georgia probably has the most realistic chance of getting in sooner rather than later compared to the other countries. Um, membership action plan is sort of a formal plan. It doesn't get, granting Georgia the membership action plan doesn't mean they get in. It's, right. a, it's a it's a series of but but they've already been doing reforms. They've already been and they've made some substantive reforms. And so there's a number of countries who've come out and said Georgia has essentially met the criteria for MAP. And interestingly enough, uh, Assistant Secretary Newland from the State Department testified in front of the House Foreign Affairs Committee on uh, on Thursday, and she essentially said that the United States government, not essentially, this is actually a quote, <laughs> she said the United States government supports a membership action plan for Georgia and thinks that Georgia has met the criteria for a membership action plan. 
And one of the questions to her uh, was, well, do you support it? Do you support them getting it in September at the NATO summit? Mm-hmm. Didn't answer that directly. So the question is, you know, when is this right. going to happen? Uh, my understanding is, is the same as yours, that Germany still has some reservations. And you know the way NATO works, it's a consensus. So right. if the, all 28 don't say let's do it, then they don't do it. But um, I think there's a compelling reason for letting Georgia in now, and then that's because it would send a strong message to Russia, uh, who is already occupying uh, Georgian territory. And, uh, you know, just, I mean, Georgia can contribute to the alliance. They've contributed in Afghanistan and other areas, and, and they've made the reforms necessary. And I think in order to actually have NATO expansion as a credible concept, you actually do have to let some people in sometimes. <laughs> right. So, you know, ask yourself, is Georgia is Georgia at the top of the list? You know, right. so. So that's so that's that's one issue, and then there's there's other countries too. I mean, even the, the Swedes and the Finns uh, have have talked about possibly you know joining NATO, um, and those are two countries who can probably meet the defense uh, criteria. Right. And they're actually Atlantic. North Atlantic, the North Atlantic. Yeah. <laughs> so so I, I you know I think um, it, it's interesting. So you know just looking at NATO. I mean, I've been in some of these NATO meetings over the past uh, year and a half or so, and uh, up until about a couple months ago, everybody was saying, you know, what's the future for NATO? Right, uh, and the focus was squarely on Afghanistan in post twenty fourteen. Nobody's asking that question anymore. Everybody right. understands now why NATO is there. Uh, but the question is: Is NATO going to change the way it operates to to uh, to accommodate that and to adjust to that, or are they going to continue to operate in the way they have, which is like you know low defense spending? Only four countries currently meet the two percent threshold. Um, can you get other countries to contribute more? Can you do more training? Can you add more countries? So. And it's sort of a double-edged sword because Putin will say, well, you're adding countries and that's, right. that's you know, free, freaking me out. And then I'm, this is why I'm doing this, because you're violating what you said you weren't going to do. But uh, I, I don't think that's it's a defensive alliance. Nobody right. could look at NATO and say this is an offensive alliance. You just can't. Right. Right. And I think the important is that Putin sort of will do his thing and, and, and twist twist whatever actions are being taken right. to, you know, to, to suit his purposes. So... Let's at least make sure the actions help us and our allies. Yeah. Well, there's a significant gap, sort of a step down from where Georgia is in terms of the reforms that they've initiated or even completed down to U- the Ukrainian level, right, in terms of preparedness to meet some of the standards that people... Well, they don't believe really in the government right now. Exactly. To, yeah. yeah, you, I, you know... So, yeah. so I, the, the implication of that question being... Letting Georgia in, it does that actually well, serve it, as an aspiration it, for the It does, it does. I'm sorry, I know. <laughs> it's, you know, one of, up until this Ukrainian crisis, one of Georgia's um, arguments for why Georgia wasn't, one of Germany's arguments for why Georgia was not ready was that it wasn't territorially integral. Mm-hmm. That you know, Russia was occupied, not Russia, but a foreign, there was a foreign occupation mm-hmm. in its territory, and that had not been settled. Right. And so, you know, if the Germans can be convinced, you know, to, to think otherwise about Georgia, then all of a sudden that 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 makes Ukraine look a lot more, I should say, a lot more likely. But it it, it eliminates one of the arguments against including them. Well, it's just it's you know it's just like look, so we're we're not going to let Georgia into NATO because Russia is illegally occupying their territory. Mm. We know full well Georgia does not have the capability to expel Russia from their territory. So, by Russia being there and by Russia staying there. Is that, does that guarantee that Georgia never becomes a member of NATO? I mean, I, I think that's probably the plan, you know. Right. Uh, and so, you know, we really got to seriously look at that. There is a question of an Article 5 issue, right? So, yeah. let Georgia in and, 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 and Russia legally occupies Georgian territory. Does that, you know, does that trigger right. an Article 5? I mean, I don't know. These are, these are all questions that, but, but they're still sufficiently vague enough that, um, 
the discussions are ongoing. And so, do I see uh, Georgia getting MAP in September? You know, I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. But, you know, at least from a U.S. perspective, we have not said we want them to get it in September. We haven't said that. That is, yeah, yeah. It would have been nice to have been heard that at the, at the testimony on Thursday. But what uh, I think, it's as far as I know, that's the first time I'm finding a U.S. official working the issue yep. who, you know, who said who said something like that in the affirmative. It was more out there than, than we've yeah. heard before. Um, and that's a good thing. But, but it doesn't substantively differ from what they've said all along. Okay. So all along statements have been both from the State Department and from Congress and resolutions that have been passed in Congress said, you know, we support membership action for Georgia. We Georgia will become a member of NATO. You know, sufficiently vague statements with no timelines and no deadlines and, and no no sense of urgency. And uh, I'm not sure that this is really any different. From okay, not, not, not a departure. Final question: Does holding the NATO summit in Wales make the entire organization a laughing stock? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, they decided to hold it in a place that has not does not have much capacity. Uh, so there's a lot of people that... Well, I mean, they have a lot of sheep. Thing. They do have a lot of sheep. And they have a lot of mud. They have a lot of mud. But they <laughs> so, can't... They can't I mean, they, they're holding it in a place where there's just... There's not that much room. So there's it, it could make a lot of, of aspirant nations, you know, quite comfortable. That level of mud, sheep, and nothing, nothing else. <laughs> <laughs> All right. On that note, um, thank you, Jeffrey Dressler. Uh, you are on Twitter. You're on Twitter. J A Dressler. At J A Dressler. Uh, Aaron, you're on Twitter. At Aaron Menenberg. At Aaron Menenberg. I'm at S K Wickham. I like the, what we're doing. Right. I like what you're doing. We um, are at Political Risk. At Political Risk. Find us on Twitter, Facebook, Political Risk. We're on SoundCloud. Uh, if you have, if you're Welsh and you have complaints, uh, you can email us politicalrisk at gmail.com. <laughs> or, or or any NATO map aspirants. Yeah, who... absolutely. Who feel they have a better supply of mud and or sheep uh, than whales. Or, or have suggestions about how much hay to, to mitigate against the discomfort. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, thank you both for joining us. Uh, thank you for listening. And uh, we'll see you next time.